Welcome back to the Africa is a Country podcast. I am your host, William Shorkey, and you are listening to Africa's a Country's venue for discussions about current affairs on the African continent from a left-wing perspective. We're available on whichever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Please subscribe as well as give us a review. Tell us what you think. Give us any feedback. We appreciate all of your support and all of your criticism and encouragement. So today is going to be a great episode, but before we get into that, let's recap what we spoke about last week. It was a wonderful conversation with Kumba Ture, as well as Maram Gay on the struggle for women's rights in Senegal, spoke about gender-based violence, spoke about feminist organizing, and it was, it was really wonderful. So be sure to check that out. That episode is live and available to you. And with that out of the way, let's talk about today. Now, I think it's important to mention what day we are recording this episode. It is at the moment, Thursday, the 24th of February. And I just want to read a little excerpt from an article that we published on Monday, the 21st of February. It was written by our founder and editor, Sean Jacobs, and provocatively titled, The Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. Sean asks the question of, where do African countries fall in the threatened invasion of Ukraine by Russia? Will African states side with the US or with the European allies or with Russia? Now, today, that question is no longer academic. It is live. It is pertinent. Russia has invaded Ukraine. And many people are wondering, what does that mean for the continent? So joining us on today's program to help us answer this question is John Lechner, who is a former financial analyst, now a freelance journalist. He writes on the politics and languages of the former Soviet Union, Turkey, and Africa with a special focus on the Central African Republic. He speaks Russian, French, Turkish, Georgian, Chechen, and Sango. Pretty remarkable. He recently graduated from the Master of Science in Foreign Services program at Georgetown University School of Foreign Services and is a contributor to Africa is a country. So, John, thank you so much for making the time to come to the program. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I think the most logical place to start is a question I've been bombarded with today from friends, family, just anyone I encounter uh, encountered throughout the course of the day is given what's just happened, which is Russia proceeding with its invasion of the Ukraine. Why? Um, and if you listen to sort of mainstream media or talk radio or whatever venue it is, uh, a lot of the rationale for the invasion is kind of simplistically being reduced to Russia's protest against Ukraine being included in in NATO, uh, which is not the whole story. So to ask you to to answer a big question at the beginning, uh, sorry to throw this at you right away, but just for our listeners, um, and especially our listeners on the continent who maybe have not been as clued up to the issue now, because for a while it's kind of had this existence on the periphery, at least while the buildup began at the start of the year, but now it feels very, very real. Um, Why? Why has Russia done this? Sure. Well, I think, uh, first of all, thanks again for having me. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and a huge fan of Africa as a country. And so it's an honor to uh, be here with you um, today. Uh, 
Uh, and thanks for uh, starting off with a question that I will inevitably fail to answer uh, correctly. Um, I think why are we seeing large scale military operations today? Uh, that's a question that I think um, a lot of experts, a lot of people who are much smarter than me and really specialize on uh, the inner workings uh, of Russian politics, uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, leadership, his, his regime, his inner circle. I, I, it's still, uh, what, what happened today, I still caught, uh, I would say, most people off guard. They did not, uh, they did not see uh, these types of uh, large-scale military operations um, targeting of, of uh, outside of Kiev, major cities, uh, deep within inside Ukraine. They did not see uh, this as a possible outcome, or they saw this as a less likely worst scenario. And I think it's become increasingly clear that the worst scenario was the plan all along. Uh, we're seeing uh, ground invasions, uh, likely with the uh, outcome of trying to topple uh, the Ukrainian government, mm -hmm. likely installing uh, a Russia-friendly regime, and what I think would essentially mount to uh, an occupation. So those were all things that uh, people were expecting as, as a worst-case, most uh, extreme scenario, and, and that's what we're seeing now. So I think uh, for everybody, this is a very humbling uh, moment in time uh, because it, it, it's clear that uh, many of us actually don't understand um, why uh, these actions were taken. Mm. So with, with that being said, uh, as, as you said as well, it's impossible to say that there that to whittle it down to just a simple binary, Ukraine and NATO, not in NATO, and that's why uh, Russia invaded. Uh, there's probably several reasons for it, uh, NATO being one, uh, that the Russian state has over time uh, seen the expansion of NATO as, as a threat. Um, it also uh, is uh, the fact that uh, Putin and within Russian Putin's ideology to, uh, in general, uh, there's a belief that Kiev uh, is the original seat of Russian culture, where Russian culture orthodoxy began, and therefore Ukraine itself uh, is a, a natural component of Russia and that the separation between uh, Ukraine and the larger Russian state is a false one, uh, one that has come about um, with the machinations, as Putin said in the speech uh, of Lenin and then in the Soviet Union, and, and that the, these borders are inherently false. Uh, beyond that as well, uh, you likely have, uh, as uh, one of my uh, colleagues has pointed out, Seva, uh, that uh, you have an, a personalist autocratic regime that, uh, and, and within personalist autocratic regimes over time, over 20 years, the uh, circle surrounding the leader gets smaller, 
the ability for good information to reach the leader, uh, non-biased, op uh, open information becomes increasingly scarce. And, and you find yourself in uh, an echo chamber uh, where uh, certain internal logics all of a sudden become much more rational. And mm. it's likely that uh, Putin and, and some of the people who are providing Putin with information are uh, overestimating uh, the uh, the welcome that they're going to receive uh, from the Ukrainian population uh, of both Ukrainian and Russian speakers, by the way. Um, they're probably underestimating the costs. And uh, as with any war, uh, every war starts with a um, one side being more optimistic than the other. And, and, and so what, what we're witnessing now, I think, is a, a mesh of, of many things and, and reasons that have changed over the decades too, but, but there is no one reason. Those are just a couple mm. that we can posit. That, that was tremendously helpful for, for an answer um, that caught you off guard. So thanks for that. And I, <laughs> I think people will, will really appreciate that. And you said something which I think is especially resonant for me about how all of this is a very humbling experience because our efforts to try and approximate a rationale for why this is all happening have proved in vain time and time again. And I think, you know, the, the, you're right that really the, 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 the lead resource to try and know what's behind Putin's mind is what Putin says. That speech on, on Monday, I think, is as close as we'll get. And you know, I read a really good analysis of that speech by um, the political theorist Branko Milanovic, mm -hmm. which I'll direct, direct listeners to. But thinking about that theme of not really being able to, to get at what motivates Putin's machinations and and Russia's broader sort of um, political maneuvers. When it comes to the African continent, there's a similar line advanced as to why Russia is involved in the continent. And we'll get into the specifics of its mm -hmm. involvement uh, in a moment. But but just to give a, a sort of a sort of sense of it, I want to read a paragraph from the piece that Sean wrote on Monday, where he says, Russia's presence on the continent is growing, especially militarily. Yes, that means mercenaries. The Associated Press recently published a map showing Russian mercenaries in nearly 20 countries on the continent where Russia is operating. Those include Libya, Guinea-Bissau, Guinea-Conakry, Nigeria, Chad, Sudan, South Sudan, Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zimbabwe, and Botswana. So we get a from that uh, a kind of picture of Russia's involvement on the continent in one form or, or another as being vast. And over the years, this has been attributed to Russia. Similarly, China's portrayed in this way as trying to expand its influence on the continent, trying to export its political ideology and bring African countries under its network of, of control. And in your writing, you've said it's a little bit more complicated than that. Could you tell us why? Sure. Um, it's another, it's another very big question. Um, <laughs> we don't shy I, away from the big questions. On yeah, the yeah, absolutely. 
So, yes, it, 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 it uh, the, I think there are a, a couple of narratives uh, that kind of almost knee-jerk narratives that, that have historical precedence in uh, the Cold War, especially, um, and even further back uh, to uh, colonialism, which see, uh, I, I mean, you don't even have to be uh, very nuanced about it. You, you literally see um, uh, different analysts describe what's going on in Africa now as the scramble for Africa 2.0 or something along those lines. I mean, those those have clear, those are clear historical references to colonialism and uh, following colonialism, the, the, the Cold War. And so uh, the these kind of very simple narratives of uh, countries like Russia uh, spreading or seeking influence for influence's sake without ever really defining what influence actually particularly means. It's, it's a word like stability. It, it's, it means what the, the speaker or the listener means, but it's rarely defined. Um, uh, the, these kind of simplifying narratives really mask the, the nuances behind it because I think that they ultimately imply that there's some sort of uh, master plan uh, behind uh, Russia's presence in Africa. And we tend to, um, when we uh, when we define or we otherize uh, who we consider to be a uh, an enemy or or a threat, uh, we have a tendency to uh, overestimate their abilities and their agency and mm -hmm. uh, their ability, their the level of control that they exert over events, which we normally wouldn't ascribe to ourselves. And, and so when uh, we talk about Russia and Africa and, and we show these maps, uh, which uh, maps can be as helpful as they can be deceiving. Um, so I think especially with that AP map, uh, is it really worth uh, covering a whole, a whole country that can be the size of France in red if there's 200 mercenaries there. It implies a level of control on a map that is um, is far beyond uh, usually the realities uh, on the ground and what the terrain permits. So uh, I think in general, the, the problem that I have with those narratives to, to go back would be uh, that they that they fall back into those simplified Cold War policies and uh, of containment of a need to counter for the sake of countering without ever really defining what one's own interests are in a particular country. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and I mean, thinking about some of those interests and who's wielding them, something that I think is, is striking about what a lot of your writing addresses is, is just the extent to which Russia's involvement um, 
on, on the continent is, is very privatized, which is to say that it happens mm -hmm. not through any official channels. It's not state sanctioned in the way that uh, one would expect a campaign for influence to go. And Russia's attitude seems to, to be happy to let its, its, its sort of oligarchs, and I put that in scare quotes because I think um, you know, something that's come up throughout the week is just the way in which portraying sort of Russian capital as an, an as, as oli um, oligarchy is, is itself a kind of otherizing uh, tendency. Um, but it's, it's happy to sort of let uh, those, those affiliated to the, to the party state um, to, to, to get involved in, in Africa and, and, a, a chief way in which this involvement has manifested has been through mercenaries, and it's it's kind of mm -hmm. it's kind of concentrated to a number of actors. This this one guy that you speak about, who's the owner of the of the Wagner Wagner Group, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and his he's got a, a a footing in the Central African Republic um, and other places uh, on the continent. Um, so why has this become the sort of primary form? of of involvement in in africa uh sort of milit military cooperation it can hardly a cooperation really but uh military involvement for sure um i think one of the more simple answers uh i think of, of why mercenaries and not um, another form of military uh, operations would be that uh, it's not important enough from a Russian perspective, and and again, that's another another issue I think with the overall uh, Russia Russia expanding in Africa. I think, as you said, uh, individuals have a lot of uh, leash when it comes to uh, operating in these environments. And they have a lot of leash because uh, it's not a, a massive priority uh, for the Kremlin. And, and so for that very reason, um, you, you, you see mercenaries and not necessarily actual uh, Russian military personnel who are participating in this. But at the same time, I do think that we need to differentiate as well um, each uh, each area, mm. and so uh, Libya has a different priority uh, than the Central African Republic. Uh, Libya is is closer. Uh, we're talking about the East Mediterranean ports. Uh, the only other port that that Russia has available in the East Mediterranean is in Syria. And so uh, Libya's importance from a state perspective is going mm. to be very different than the Central African Republic. We can't forget that the Central African Republic is, uh, I, I, it's either 188 or 189 in terms of the least developed uh, countries in the world. It's at the very bottom. Uh, it is not uh, something that keeps uh, Vladimir Putin up at night. Uh, and so uh, the, I think the level of equipment 
the level of talent that you will see uh, will differ depending on the level of interest involved as well. And so in a place like the Central African Republic, um, unfortunately, uh, you often see uh, equipment that breaks down, uh, perhaps not the best, most highly trained of, uh, of people uh, mm -hmm. showing up. Um, but I think the, the, again, the kind of the summary answer is that uh, rather than show the importance of Africa to Moscow, the presence of mercenaries is interesting because it actually shows the limits of their interests, the, the boundaries, uh, the boundaries of their interests, mm. that they're, that they're willing to uh, sacrifice or maybe not sacrifice, but they're willing to tolerate the potential for uh, embarrassment, the potential for issues that might arise um, with the presence of mercenaries, uh, but no further than that. Mm. What I find interesting about it is that once again, to problematize the overarching kind of Cold War narrative, it seems as if for a lot of these private actors, the straightforward motive is, is accumulation, uh, is profiteering um, and doing so cheaply and quickly. As you say, the, the technology and equipment that is, is transferred is often unreliable, but it's of no interest to them because it's, it's a way to make a, to make a quick buck. And uh, this, this has me thinking back to uh, an interview I did with Professor Xiaoyang Tang about China and Africa, where I think, you know, China does have a little bit more of uh, a strategy. Um, but even then, the strategy is, is straightforwardly driven by political, economic and material interests. It's not some effort to try and aspire to to great power influence, um, mm -hmm. but to to make money and expand the 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 places where you make money, which in in ultimately is actually consistent with with theories of of imperialism. That's the primary reason why uh, imperialism takes root is is finding um, more places to to make money. Um, yeah, and and that's that's. That's primarily why Russia is, 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 or why Russia through all of its um, people and, and companies connected to it is, is on the continent. Yeah, I, 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 it's a great point because I think uh, there, it is primarily uh, to make money, but we shouldn't over exoticize that as well. Um, I think any uh, US State Department official would also say that one of their key jobs is to open up trade uh, to exactly. for US goods, exactly. to markets and things along those lines. Uh, and, and, and a lot of what a lot of the Russian presence uh, in Africa it has nothing to do with mercenaries. I mean, it's very run of the mill. Uh, I mean, maybe not run of the mill from a average person you and me perspective but i mean if you're if you work in the 
you work in oil, uh, you work in the gas sector, if you work in the, these types of industries, a lot of what they do is uh, what a lot of other companies do, look for new, uh, look for new oil fields, look for uh, opportunities for uh, Gazprom, for Rosneft, for Luke Oil. Um, and uh, why is this important? It's important for the same reason that things are important in other countries as well. Big companies employ lots of people and they have an out, uh, as in the United States, they have an outsized role in, in deciding foreign policy. Um, mm -hmm. And so what, what can be probably a little bit more unique about Russia, and, and, and I take your, your point on not trying to over-exoticize or um, otherize uh, Russian capital as, as oligarchic, but you do have uh, perhaps some, some unique scenarios where uh, you have individuals who are both the heads of, of large state-owned enterprises who also have uh, the uh, ear and outsized influence within foreign policy as well. And, and so you also might have what at the end of the day is probably a more personalized uh, version uh, of other phenomena that, that we see very typically with uh, French interests or US interests or things along those lines, but they're just embodied perhaps uh, in a in an individual mm, <laughs> as mm. opposed to a, a group of individuals. Um, and, and, and so for that reason, I think it can be often very difficult for us on the outside to make a judgment on what is the interest of an individual uh, or of a private uh, enterprise that is run by a specific individual and what is the interest of the state because these things can can be a little bit more mixed uh perhaps uh than uh, or more opaque perhaps than than in other countries that uh are more will receive more transparency uh, mm. let's put it that way. Mm. just to just to make a quick digression on that exact point um read two good pieces this week one written by Sam Green, I think, on his Substack, And it was basically saying that, well, Russia's main beef is not with NATO, but with the EU, because uh, further European integration, which is basically what Ukraine seeks and using NATO as a backdoor, kind of threatens the Russian model of capital accumulation, which, as you said, is very clientelistic, uh, patrimonial and personalized. Um, and if Russia has less immediate spheres of influence, it has less immediately accessible sites of accumulation and itself would be forced to kind of pursue a developmental model uh, along the lines of what the European Union represents. Um, and a similar piece by John Gantz on his Substack kind of making, making this argument. But that's a quick digression. Uh, coming back to the relationship between Africa and Russia. What I think is maybe another unique thing, and, and this is where I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear how, how this works out, is that in as much as Russia on the one hand is, is happy to have a kind of 
disinterested attitude in what its um, what what its uh, entities get up to on the continent. Um, at the same time, it views sort of just general increasing Russian presence on the continent as reinforcing the idea of of Russia as a as a great power. So mm -hmm. it might not be sort of consciously seeking to cultivate its image as a great power and do so along lines which portray it as as straight and narrow, but mm -hmm. use use it as somehow kind of achieving that. I think I think the one word you use um, in the piece that you wrote for War on the Rocks is that it it helps it achieve uh, the Rezavnost, which is great power mm -hmm. status. So how does I mean, once again, this is us trying to sort of enter the minds of 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 the of 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 Russia. But how does it figure its ability to both simultaneously kind of maintain this fairly blasé attitude, uh, kind of uninterested in the repercussions of that, uh, but at the same time, it contributes to to the idea of Russia as being a great power. So I'm I'm super good that the I'm super glad that you asked that because uh, as I was talking earlier about the narratives I, I was realizing that I was forgetting a couple of <laughs> <laughs> the main points that I wanted to say uh, but so how does how does that work I think in multiple ways and the most important thing and another um, key point that uh is missing from the the kind of cold war 2.0 russia mm. expanding for the sake of expanding is that we have to ground uh russia's presence in each african country uh in african agency mm. in especially the agency of local elites and the local mm. government and so in so many of these instances, it's not actually Russia expanding into a particular country. It's actually local elites who are reaching out to mm. Russia because they think that by reaching out to uh, an outside power, they're able to better consolidate, better position themselves within whatever domestic political issue or struggle uh, they currently find themselves. So ultimately, when, when we're talking about this, I mean, all geopolitics is ultimately local. When, when you get mm -hmm. down to the local level, uh, it is local actors who uh, feel that they can uh, gain some sort of advantage over competitors by uh, reaching out to or leveraging uh, outside help. And, and, and so we saw that so, saw that in Libya with Haftar, we saw that with Twadera in the Central African Republic, that he felt his position was weak, that there could be a potential coup. He reached out. We've seen that uh, most obviously with the current uh, regime in Mali, that Ooh. they've been seeking to, uh, that they've reached out to offset uh, French interests in Sudan. Um, it was Bashir who reached out to the Russians when he was nervous that he, he thought that uh, 
American influence was seeking to undermine his rule. And so he thought he could counterbalance that with the Russians. And his, uh, his offer of a, of a port obviously fell on very welcome ears. And so uh, for every push factor that there is, there's always a pull factor too. Uh, and so Africans them, themselves, and especially African governments, mm. uh, are major actors in whatever uh, Russian presence you, uh, you might be seeing. Uh, and then to the concept of derzhavnost uh, or this kind of ideology or this sense, this idea that Russia is, is a great power and, and uh, basically looking to uh, find ways to constantly reify that fact that it's a great power. Um, I would say as well that a lot of that is not necessarily uh, special as it pertains to Russia. So if we take, for example, uh, where I where I live and work in Washington, D.C., mm. uh, you have uh, the U.S. government, which uh, sets essentially the bookends of what is possible in, in American foreign policy, what, uh, what is, uh, it's never written down, but what is okay and what is not okay. And then you have a lot of companies, uh, a lot of individuals who then within that kind of national security infrastructure, try to make money. And the way that you try to make money is by showing that your project is supportive or in the interest of the national interest. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so really what uh, kind of ironically, uh, it would be Russia itself who would be interested in, in that Cold War Russia narrative because it's the individuals who want to show that what they are doing, uh, that they're, yes, they're making money, but they're making money in the national interest of Russia. Mm. Uh, and so it, it's a very, again, it's a very complicated kind of mm. push where mm. all actors are creating and recreating narratives to kind of define uh, what the interests are. Mm. But, but those narratives uh, are never just a top down. It's, it's not set by Putin and then everybody else tries to figure out what it is. Mm. People underneath are also trying to uh, establish what the narrative is and figure out how they can make money within that. Mm. And, and this push-pull dynamic, I think one large factor for why, as you were just describing, local elites are, are undergoing your word for it was extroversion sort of mm -hmm. um yeah. trying to to curry favor with with russia is that the the presence of the west which you know includes france the united states uh the eu is on the continent is like is a story of retreat basically uh they're kind of withdrawing either in you know over simplistically throwing their hands up and and kind of um, and and 
dismissing the continent as once again as this hopeless place where stability is illusory and it's just too chaotic and the Sahel is a is a ticking time bomb and and they want to get out get out of there as quickly as they can and don't want to be involved and they're just going to wash their hands and and be on their way. Um, that's kind of very much the sense that you're getting now and and some of this is itself uh, the outcome of local pressures so the growing anti-French sentiment in the Sahel, for example. Um, and so as this retreat is happening, um, local actors seek uh, greater collaboration with, with other foreign actors um, and, and in so doing, find a, a meeting of the minds of sorts. So, you know, it occurred to me now that this wave of coups, uh, which is now a sort of recurring topic on on the podcast podcast mm. lately because we're trying to grapple with you know what does this mean um it's it's sort of given a a new lease of life to to anti-liberal sentiment on the continent um mm-hmm. so in very broad strokes seeing the return of of arguments which are are critical of liberal democracy uh to court often so mm-hmm. so never kind of liberal democracy as the vehicle through which neoliberalism happened and and ec- economies were were devastated, but but almost a kind of an, an argument intrinsically protesting um, dem- liberal democracy conceptually and and what it means, and at the same time, kind of um, indicating a preference for 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 strong arm strong arm regimes. So yeah. it seems like that's. Also, another place where you give give Russia a place to kind of enter and be in natural alignment with a lot of the people seeking their entry, because Russia also wants to encourage, maybe not in 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 any kind of um, any kind of overactive sense, but is similar similarly anti liberal uh, and and similarly pushes pushes that worldview. Yeah. Well, I, I think, yeah, it, it's it, it's a very interesting time right now, and I think, especially when it comes to the Sahel, one of the major, uh, and, and I wrote about it in, in that piece, one of the major criticisms that uh, Western countries uh, lob at Russia or or Chinese uh, or the Chinese presence as well in the Chinese government uh, in Africa is uh, that they support autocracies and illiberal uh, forms of government. Uh, the 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 problem with that, of course, is that uh, so has the United States, so has France. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, and and uh, obviously uh, that doesn't cut it. Like people people can recognize that, that hypocrisy. And, and so uh, the United States and France have, have made uh, a lot of, especially since 9-11 and the war on terror have really uh, paid lip service to democratization, especially in areas where they've been particularly concerned about 
uh, jihadist movements uh, and extremism mm. uh, for the simple fact that they would have pre preferred the stability of an autocratic regime uh, to what would be, I, I mean, we have to face it, democracy is actually inherently unstable. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, 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 it is a uh, competitive elections. I, I mean, they they are uh, they are conflictual. There might not be arms, but but it is an unstable uh, environment. Uh, obviously, the the stability that uh, autocrats off, offer is often <laughs> very surface level and ethereal. But uh, there there there's always been kind of a, a preference for stability, which in reality just means status quo, which in reality always meant authorita the authoritarians who are already present. And again, same, uh, same issue as before, uh, local governments were able to take advantage of the new discourse, which was the war on terror, uh, just as the new discourse is becoming great power competition. Mm -hmm. to reach out and, and receive more support uh, from outside governments because all of a sudden everybody has to be the bulwark against uh, Islamic extremism. So there's a long, long history of this extroversion, obviously, and it's, it's not my idea. It's uh, a mm -hmm. very famous theory that uh, Bayach uh, wrote about in the 80s. Um, but I, I think that... Uh, though those issues the fact that um at least since the war on terror in the sahel uh, uh western governments have played, paid lip service to democratization and, and it hasn't really affected resulted in uh the bettering of ordinary uh lives in the sahel that that you see a very natural um uh, response to it, response to it now, and one that uh, some of these leaders have, have recognized as an opportunity to take advantage uh, in in kind of these populist uh, populist coups. Mm. So, I mean, what what glimmers of hope are there that things could be otherwise? So. In a lot of the, the writing, for example, the Financial Times recently published an article about a brewing catastrophe in the Sahel, that's its title. What its sort of prescriptive comment is to say that the, the only way out of this powder keg, powder keg of, of, of unhelpful foreign interference is for the EU to play a more positive role and encourage meaningful democratic initiatives that uh, reinvest power in the hands of the of the people and in other places it almost seems like the alternative is to to hope for a strategic transformation on the part of the West to say that rather than pursuing retreat um, in the face of its abysmal failure to achieve anything, uh, by being in the region for reasons that you've just outlined, where it's similarly also propped up autocracy, it should come back and do the opposite. So, but that seems, you know, I mean, on, on first flush, that seems awfully kind of, um, 
over optimistic, so to speak. So, I mean, yeah. what, what might be uh, another way? And as I say this, of course, the, the way we do want is, is one that is, is driven not by, by states and elites, but by the people themselves. Um, but, you know, that's always, that's always the hope for, for actual, the actual politics and organizing uh, at the grassroots yeah. level to determine this. But as far as the, the actors that could create an environment for that sort of thing to, to flourish, um, who are they and, and what signs do we have that they might want to do this, that it aligns with their interests at the current moment? I, I, it's such a it's such a tough question because the the overall structures that are in place um, that render some countries and some people always the interveners and others the intervened are 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 so overwhelming and, and uh difficult to change that i'm not sure there's any <laughs> uh specific really any intervention that would mm. that would be possible that would that would the the interventions are are in themselves a, a symptom of this overall yeah. sim- system and and so you can't cure the the system with its own symptom. I guess would be I don't know a bad metaphor for it. I think it and works so, pretty well. <laughs> they should write that down. But, <laughs> um, and, and so there's a couple of things that I think are important. And uh, uh, Nathaniel Powell just had a great piece on what did. Um, and more on the rocks on what did the what did the french do wrong in mali and and the answer was a lot mm. but i think one uh specific uh issue that that really resonated um was uh that uh you, you one risks uh ignoring the perceptions and the priorities of of locals at, at uh, one's own risk, and, and so uh, for France, one of the original issues was that they prioritized the groups to fight that were more important in their minds, which was uh, the various jihadi groups, whereas. They did not listen to uh, the Malian authorities, who actually viewed uh, Tuareg separatism in the north as as big of an issue as, as uh, the extremist groups uh, in other parts of the country. Uh, and so, when you get these mich- mismatching prioritizations, and you're not listening to the local perspectives of people. Uh, your interventions are always, at least on a, from a security basis, are, are always going to wind up uh, ineffective or wind up getting kicked out like France. Uh, the other example, so I just came came back from 
uh, rural Central African Republic. And uh, in most places now, security is actually improving. And uh, in pretty much everywhere, not everybody, but a, a very a vast majority of people are actually very happy with what the Russians are doing. And uh, that's because they view uh, the security situation and the major problem in the country as the presence of armed groups. That is the most important issue for them. And uh, with the Russian PMCs and with uh, partnering with the Central African Armed Forces, retaking most of the country, uh, that is, uh, from the absolute majority of people's perspective, a very good thing. And uh, to see now the, the rest of the world concentrate really only on the, on the Russian presence uh, and not on the armed groups, which are just as bad, if not worse, mm -hmm. you're absolutely missing what locals want. And it's absolutely going to result in uh, some sort of gigantic misunderstanding, which which has already occurred in Kark, and which we which we saw occur again in Mali, and so any of these types of interventions have to recognize that your security priorities might not actually be the lo local security priorities. Mm, mm, which I think gets and, at a at a fundamental mis misalignment, um, yeah. which is that the the security priorities for for locals. Uh, as we've seen as the main kind of impetus for these coups is security is for yeah. the kind of yeah. basic, the basic yeah. rise in detra for the state to exist. Um, yeah. And whereas for the West, it's security priorities refracted through their own geopolitical economic interests. And so I mean, I'm curious to hear why it's the case that, um, Russia, part of, uh, Russia collaborating with the Central African Republic government has has led to a, a more effective relationship. But it just seems that if 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 those mercenaries, um, you know, just hide swords and they're there for you to tell them how they can help and what they can do, then things get done. <laughs> but maybe that's just a you know an oversimplistic way of putting it. But maybe no, I, I mean. It's not. I mean, I think you know. I, I will be. Uh, I will be the first one to say that uh, if the Central African government partnering with Russian mercenaries results in a modicum of a return of stability and an ability for Central Africans to to just start returning to somewhat normal lives after. Uh, essentially what's been 15 decades of, or sorry, 15 years of instability and, and an entire decades of lack of presence of the state, then that's absolutely a good thing. The, the, I think what we often, uh, we often fail to, uh, to give enough credence to the fact that uh, in the case of, 
of CAR, Central African Republic, uh, Central Africans are, are all experts in in the security situation in the Central African Republic. Mm. You, you talk to your friends and you say, "Hey, can can I go here?" And it's like the, the it's like they I don't there, there are these networks that of how people are able to tell each other what's safe, what's not safe. It's like a spider checking the threads <laughs> or checking the pulse. And they all seem to know right away whether or not something's good or not good. And uh, they they are all experts. They are all aware of the trade-offs and they have the full information. And they know that they are choosing between a predatory armed group in an imperfect state. And, and those are the choices. It's not a choice between uh, bad guys and, and, and good guys. It, mm. it, 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 and uh, all Central Africans want the return of the state, however imperfect that might be. And, and, and so we discount that uh to to our own peril um and we geopoliticize that as well to our own peril as well mm. Mm. so maybe maybe as as a as a closing question thinking about geopoliticizing it to our own peril are there any avenues for multilateral efforts in in these conflict ridden regions um military cooperation that involves russians americans the chinese um and and that is that is firmly committed to to seeking uh solutions that prioritize the the interests the knowledge the needs of of those countries that it affects the most um I mean, of course, you know, if I asked this question, maybe like, I don't know, two weeks ago, maybe it would have sounded a little bit more feasible, but considering <laughs> yeah. what's, what's just happened, the idea that that the Russians and the Americans and the French and whoever it might else it may be, uh, will sit at a table and and all sincerely be committed to to a, a multilateral effort seems, yeah. seems like more than wishful thinking. Um, but But trying to sort of, trying to sort of envision what shapes uh, the conflict in the Sahel might take, the conflict in, in Kaa might take in, in the short to medium term. Uh, what, is, what might that look like? Um, and, and is the sort of catastrophism that is being trumpeted by, for example, the Financial Times warranted? Um, or or might we might we need to have a, a much more optimistic outlook and and think about how to to make do with with the situation as it stands and 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 yeah. and, and judge it by by its own trajectory it's a it's another great question i mean i think uh we i don't think that we should uh, necessarily prophesize catastrophe because uh, the although if you take a situation like car, it, of course people can 
can laugh. They have parties. They they do you know they they find ways to live uh, rewarding lives. But that we also cannot say that to discount that the fact that one in three is displaced, sixty uh, percent are in need of uh, some sort of uh, food aid or uh, and just in incredible amounts of, of, of children died before the age of five. So we we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't say that uh, they're just victims and and we <laughs> and yeah. and there's nothing to do. But we shouldn't uh, as well, we shouldn't kind of be overly optimistic about where we are right now in, in, in a lot of these countries. I mean people people are really suffering. Um, the Western interventions against in, in the Sahel, uh, clearly have not been successful. And I think clearly, uh, the, uh, many citizens of these countries are actually, uh, are, do not judge Western interventions by their intentions, but by their results. And unfortunately for the Western interventions, the results have been that things are worse. Mm. And, and, and so we shouldn't be surprised, uh, when, uh, when they say, well, this, you know, it's worse that when we say that wasn't our intention, that they don't think that's good enough. Um, and we shouldn't therefore, uh, we, we should certainly have a, a certain degree of humility when it comes to uh, the problem now. And we certainly shouldn't make an effort uh, to try and uh, counter uh, the presence of Russian mercenaries on the continent because we'll only contribute further to a securitization process that has so far uh, at least when it comes to the war on terror, only made things uh, worse in the countries that uh, that this has happened in, and and especially in a place like Car right now, where you actually have a, a modicum of of stability returning in many parts of the country, which uh, is something that uh, I think a lot of humanitarians and officials will admit off the record. Obviously, um, it, it, it certainly uh, means that perhaps the best way you don't necessarily have to cooperate um, and yeah. sit at the same table, but perhaps the best way is to look for uh, other ways uh, that one can contribute um, to the numerous infrastructure issues and building roads uh you know working on uh, issues of aid distribution so many other things that are underlying ultimately underlying factors for why conflict developed in the first place and that you have mercenaries to even begin with and, and i think those are the things that uh these governments can be good at uh and can contribute uh, in a more meaningful way than trying to counter the security presence of another. Mm. And yeah, that the idea that one should not counter the security presence of another made me think of, of a point Professor Tang 
made on the episode we did on China, where he pointed out that in many ways there's there's already sort of multilateral entanglements in practice when it comes to sort of Chinese Western involvement uh, on the continent insofar as that for one project you could have at different stages of of the of the project's life um, a Chinese uh, contract interacting with uh, a Western one and and maybe it's just about mm -hmm. not trying to to, to, to stifle um, that kind of organic um, cross uh, involvement um, across the board. Yeah. No, absolutely not. China building roads and infrastructure, uh, I mean, yes, there might be uh, examples of, of issues, uh, here and there, but I mean, overall, that's a great thing. <laughs> and we should, we should all treat that as a great thing. Mm. And, and if people's security improves and it's not because of us, but because of someone else, then that's also a great thing too. Um, and, uh, but we should focus where, where we can focus and we should of course call out, uh, human rights abuses and issues when they occur, but we should really double down on what, we, and, and I, I say we as, as in the West, as if I'm speaking for it, but Western countries <laughs> should, because if I represent all of America now, all of a sudden, <laughs> the U.S. government and the West uh, should really try and focus on on areas that, that they can contribute to logistically, uh, financially, and, and uh, on these kind of again, within these conflict environments on, on some key issues that are the ultimate drivers of it. Mm. Because if there's no conflict, they're, they're, it's very tough for mercenaries to be there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's not their business model. Yeah, ex exactly. Uh, and I mean, I was hoping you wouldn't realize that the, the reason I called you on the podcast was to account for the West, but my, my cover's been blown. For the <laughs> sins of everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, funny enough, I mean, now I've, now I've realized what the, the actual final question I want to ask is, is that um, once again, just sort of jolted out of consciousness and remembering that uh, this, this idea that, that one should, should double down and, and not try to interfere with, with what other actors are doing um, would have sounded a little bit more kind of um possible uh, a few weeks back but again yeah. you know the what looms is is the fact that there is now invasion in ukraine and and thinking of the question that sean asked in in his piece about whether or not african countries will will side with the united states and the united states allies or side with russia i think at the end of the conversation we've had um We've kind of problematized the, the sort of great war outlook on on the balance of forces in the world today and and sort of um seeing how it itself becomes this self-reinforcing logic yeah. um the more you yeah, feed yeah. it but but we're one to answer that question um especially especially thinking about uh on the one hand both african states and the elites which which govern them wanting to to leverage their 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 own interests um through their mm -hmm. through such allegiances um and the the possibility that a lot of this this unfolding 
war is going to play out in the sort of halls of multilateral governance in the United Nations and yeah. whatever else it might be. Um, and there might be votes. Um, there might be African countries might be might be pushed to side with with someone. Um, mm -hmm. How do you see that going? I mean, just just from the South African perspective and looking at the South African government's initial reaction to yeah. what's going on, you know, I'm of the view that we should be non-aligned. We should just sort of we should do what the 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 third worldists of old got right and and be non-aligned. Um, but there's many people who are sort of imputing on the part of the South African government that it's 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 got a it's got an attraction to the Russian side, just given sort of previous associations yeah. with some of our elites here with the Russian yeah, government, uh, chief yeah. of which is former president Jacob Zuma, who who is infamous for 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 corruption in the country um, and wanted to invite the Russians to participate in that. But long-winded way of, of getting to the to the question of push comes to shove, were it to be a matter of African states having to pick a side, um, how do you see that playing out uh, in lieu of what we've just yeah. discussed? I think you're right. I think the I think the unfortunate takeaway, and you know, we're recording this on the 24th, and so uh, I don't know exactly when this is going to come out, but hopefully in the next day or two. Want to get well, it well in the next in the next which is a long time. Is a long. Any of the things I'll say about Ukraine will be wrong by then. And, um, but I think uh, there, there's a couple of important things. The, the, the first is that uh, the people who are going to suffer immediately from this uh, are mm -hmm. the Ukrainian people. Absolutely. The, the second group of people who are going to su suffer pretty immediately from this are ordinary Russians who, who are going to have to deal with the repercussions and uh, the soldiers on both sides who are going to have to mm -hmm. die in this war. Uh, and unfortunately, I think that uh, after that, too, this will have an effect on Africa because, like you said, uh, it's going to geopoliticize a lot of these issues. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to become more of a wedge issue. And I think that that uh, is incredibly unfortunate because, as we already talked about, uh the it, it what what is what is happening uh in terms of the russian interactions with various african countries and societies is not a uh state led uh desire to expand influence for influence sake we're not in a new cold war um and unfortunately I think there's going to be a a desire uh, to fall back into the certain path dependencies uh, that had existed before, and, and, and to make this more of a wedge issue, and to tie the war in Ukraine to Mali, or to tie Ukraine to the Central African Republic. And in that respect, too, it will actually, unfortunately, affect. Uh, probably ordinary Central Africans uh, or Malians in, in that way as well, whether it's from uh, a desire to uh, counter in, in some way 
limit uh, France and the EU have already uh, withdrawn their 30% budget support for the Central African government. So they're basically trying to put them into a fiscal crisis, the wow. poorest country in the world. So you're going to probably see more of those issues. And, and who's going to suffer is, is Central Africans when these things get geopoliticized. Um, and so I think, unfortunately, we're going to we're going to see more of that. And I think we need to make an effort, people really need to make an effort to try and push back mm -hmm. against simplifying narratives and embrace complexity and embrace nuance and recognize also that uh, folks in, in, in different countries uh, view Russia uh, through a different framework than they do necessarily in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that they don't have the, the same facts. They just prioritize facts differently in the same way that they, they lend importance to one fact over the other, which maybe someone in America doesn't. And uh, a good example of that was uh, Gaddafi in Libya. Uh, you know, a, a menace uh, for a lot of Western countries and, and someone who was a committed Pan-Africanist for others. <laughs> and, both are, and both are equally true. Mm. And, and, and different perspectives uh, lend greater importance to different sides of, of what was a very complicated regime, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think that uh, you're going to see the same type of perspectives uh, around, uh, around Russia. I mean, as you said, with South Africa, uh, and many other countries, uh, Mozambique, uh, Zimbabwe, the, the Soviet Union uh, played an incredible role in uh, anti-colonial liberation movements. Uh, and that, that, was a, that was a great thing. And, and, and so people have, have different perspectives. Uh, but the unfortunate thing, I think, is that... Uh, we're going to see a lot more desire to enforce or push uh, certain simplifying perspectives from mm -hmm. a uh, from different sides that kind of fall along opposite sides of whatever geopolitical fault line. So, I expect, unfortunately, today, and I, we'll see if it's still accurate in two days' time. But I think, as of today, I think we can say that. Uh, we'll see more geopolitics in the future, not less. John, on, on, on that somber note, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I must uh, extend my, my thanks to you for, for coming on and oh, thank you. a lot of analytical work for us. Uh, it's been truly illuminating. And I think uh, a lot of listeners are, are going to appreciate this one. A reminder of who I've been chatting with. John Lechner is a former financial analyst, now a freelance journalist writing on the politics of the former Soviet Union, Turkey and Africa, with a special focus on the Central African Republic. He speaks many languages. I'm not going to name all of them now, mostly because I'm a little bit jealous. Uh, and he recently graduated from the Master of Science in Foreign Services program at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and is a contributor to Africa as a country. We've been chatting about Russia's influence in Africa, how to make sense of it in the wake of Russia's invasion from the Ukraine. And the too long didn't read is things aren't looking good. We might be forced to pick a side in the coming days, but the right side is to not pick a side at all. 
I think is that's right. Yeah, exactly. that's right. So, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, so John, thanks. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Um, and I uh, appreciate you taking the time to our listeners. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week with more analyses and conversations on topics affecting the African continent from a left perspective until then. Goodbye.